Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions Podcast. Salvation is here. Feeling inarticulate, critically gauche, or just verbally impotent? We here at Pixmaven have developed the Instant Art Critique Phrase Generator, so you need never again feel at a loss for pithy commentary or savvy insights. With this device, you can speak about art with both authority and confidence. Use this marvellous tool to amaze and confound friends and colleagues. Don't miss this opportunity to menace and dumbfound professors and artists and meriti. The instructions are simple. Type any five-digit number in the field below, click Create, and enjoy your ready-made critical response to the art product, or crap. Now you can produce crap critiques as easily and fluently as anyone in your MFA program. Okay, Kaylee, have a go. All right, so please enter your number here. Five, six, four, seven, eight. Create art critique. Voila! Your instant critical response to the art product, or crap, is here. Although I am not a painter, I think that the iconicity of the... Oh my gosh, of the facture notates the substructure <laughs> of critical thinking. Well, that sounds like crap to me. Let's do another one. With regard to the issue of content, the disjunctive perturbation of the That's producer Kaylee and director Mark having fun with an online text generator created in 2012 to make fun of art critics. We're talking about art and beauty in this episode, but you can be sure we're not going to be using words like transversal and visuality. Because beauty ought to be something that's universal and accessible to everyone. The question, what is beauty, has been of interest since the earliest ancient philosophers even began asking questions. It's often considered an essential ingredient to the good life, 
No beauty, no joy, no imagination, no transcendence. So knowing what beauty is, where it comes from, and what it points toward are important life pursuits. Now, we're not going to be able to answer all the deep questions in this episode, but our guests today are experts in beauty, showing beauty, explaining how beauty influences us, and what it can show us about life itself. I'm John Dixon, and this is a beautiful Undeceptions episode. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan's new book, The Beauty Chases, by Timothy Willard. Each episode at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course, or even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. I want to ask, um, high art is often thought of as, you know, inaccessible, you know, just for the middle-class nerd. So how, how can all of this stuff connect to ordinary people, ordinary life? So I grew up around, I grew up in, in a farming community, a small town in Indiana. Um, and when I was writing this book, so my exposure to art was not high-minded, erudite, philosophical city folk. Uh, it was soybean farmers and uh you know our town had a pork festival you know and and uh, so for me i i think i w- i wanted to approach art from the perspective of if i handed this these essays to a, to the farmer down the street would he feel like i went way over his head or would he feel like that was a good time you know that was a good time reading that 
So that was what I was aiming for. I think um, that's Russ Ramsey. He's an author and a Christian pastor from Nashville, Tennessee. His latest book is called Rembrandt is in the Wind learning to love art through the eyes of faith. He recently started Art Wednesday on his social pages, posting a series of nine works grouped either by artist or theme to encourage people to interact with beauty, he says. This can be an ugly world, he writes, and we need to be reminded of its wonder and glory. I think, um, I think it's a very valid form of art criticism to stand in front of a painting and say, I really like this one. Uh, and it's a valid form of art criticism to stand in front of a painting and say, I don't get this one. Uh, and I don't think you have to know a whole lot more. But, you know, the, the joy of taking in art uh, is that you have a lifetime to do it. And so you don't have to and you develop a vocabulary and you develop a uh, an understanding of of kind of techniques that people use in order to communicate things. Russ is not a formal art critic. He's just a guy who loves art and decided to write a bunch of essays on the artists he loves and what they've taught him about the world and about faith. The essays are now a book and I highly recommend you get it. I'm going to I'm going to say an artist's name and and uh, from from you know mentioned in your book and you're just going to give me one or two sentences that sums them up. Okay, all right. Okay. Michelangelo um, extremely confident and arrogant and angry and perhaps the greatest artist the world has ever known. You call Michelangelo's David statue uh, the most perfect work of art ever achieved by any one of us. Well, okay. You're going to have to justify that. <laughs> Tell me why. Okay, listen. I mean, I think it's pretty, but you know, like I know, I know. I let me let me get the wording precise. Okay, the wording is: I believe that Michelangelo's David is the single greatest artistic achievement by an individual in the history of humankind. Um, now, I have some I have some rationale for this, but before I even give the rationale, I am fully aware that that is an absurd thing to say. Um, like I I know it's ridiculous. My invitation is give me the substitute. Um, tell me to, if it's not David, then what is it? Um, and some quick hits on that. Don't show me a painting because it's two dimensional and I'm talking about an achievement. Um, so the technical achievement of it and don't show me a bronze sculpture because this is marble. All you can do with marble is subtract. You can't add to it. And so it's unforgiving. Um, and you know, don't show me a marble sculpture of of a horse uh, because the human form is the most the naked human form is the most complex uh, thing to get right carving it out of a single piece of stone where you can't make any corrections. And so when I think about it on that level, and I have to qualify, David Michelangelo's David is not my favorite piece of art. Um, I don't even know if it cracks my top ten in terms of favorites, but I stand in awe of it. Um, because of the achievement of it. Russ isn't the only one to say this. The esteemed artist and historian Giorgio Vasari wrote, no other artwork is equal to it in any respect. With such just proportion, beauty and excellence did Michelangelo finish it. 
It depicts the biblical figure of King David, of course. The Florentines loved David as a symbol of their culture. He represents courage, strength, and perseverance, the same things they saw in themselves. Michelangelo made his David obviously uncircumcised. So that too is perhaps a projection of Catholic Florence onto an ancient Jew, which is kind of weird. But anyway, Michelangelo created his David from a single block of marble somewhere between 1501 and 1504. He is only 26 years old when he got the commission. The statue was destined to be one in a series that would line the roof of the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore. The famous dome of the cathedral still pierces the cityscape of Florence today. I love Florence. Shout out to any listeners there. But once the piece was finished, it was clear it was going nowhere because it was impossible to lift. So the Statue of David took its place in the nearby palace. It now sits in the Galleria dell'Accademia. By the way, in 2015, a Melbourne family added a four-metre concrete copy of the Statue of David to their front yard, much to the dismay of the neighbours. The statue was called vulgar, tacky, and eyesore. Fair enough. Perhaps beauty is also partly about context and originality. Can we go briefly philosophical, okay? (laughs) Um, What is beauty? Uh, and I guess I want to say, is it an objective thing or is it purely subjective matter of taste? Well, it, it can't be purely subjective because it's universal, right? And so, and so if beauty is something that, um, that beckons a human being to engage, which is one of the things beauty does, it, by nature it attracts. Um, so we are drawn to beauty, uh, whether it's, you know, me seeing my wife for the first time in college and perking up, you know, or us, you know, getting in our vehicle and driving to see, you know, the Grand Canyon or, or flying across the ocean to visit the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. There's something about a pull that beauty has that draws us as human beings toward it. Um, as a, as a Christian, I believe that beauty is a, um, is a, is a reflection of the nature and character of the creator of, of the world that, that beauty reflects, uh, the one who made the world that we live in. And so, um, so there's an element of that where, where, uh, when we engage with beauty, it's a kind of, uh, engaging with God. And so, um, so we're, now we're in, now we're not just philosophical, but theological, I suppose. But well, all good philosophy ends up theological, so doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you know, beauty is one of those things. I think it, it also beauty uh, is something that that is, is that works in our lives to show us places where we're wrong about things. I, I, this is an idea that um, Mako Fujimura shared with me. He's a, he's an artist in New York city. Um, and, uh, that he got from a woman named Elaine scary, who wrote a book called on beauty and being just, and she talks about how beauty shows us where we're wrong. Um, that you can form a, uh, kind of a prejudicial impression of a place or a people or a food or a culture. Um, but if you experience it, if you get up close to it, if you immerse yourself in it, um, you, you, you will find how, how small your vision was and, and the beauty of, of a custom, the beauty of a, uh, a flavor uh, or a dish or a um, kind of music being performed for you in person, will it'll humble us. 
when we talk about purpose and utility, we kind of miss the mark. Uh, and that is Makoto Fujimura, a leading contemporary artist and author. He's well known for his process-driven, refractive, slow art. New York Times writer David Brooks called his process, quote, a small rebellion against the quickening of time. Makoto's work imbues feelings of hope, of healing, redemption, and refuge. And he travels the world as an international advocate for the arts. He's also very public about his Christian faith. And his latest book is called Art Plus Faith, A Theology of Making. I was super excited to get him on the podcast. Because God is the artist. God is beauty. Um, and therefore, art exists simply as a reflection of God's being. And so we don't have to justify it uh, as if it needs a purpose, <laughs> because it, 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 is, it is at the heart of creation. And, and uh, by what I mean by that is actually it counters the Darwinian struggle that we find ourselves um, in, in the survival game, uh, scarcity mindset, uh, zero-sum game that we play. Um, and Jesus, you know, stands on the hill of Galilee reminding us to consider the ladies of the field, uh, look at the birds of the air. And we, we ask like, why? You know, we need to survive. Give us, you know, something practical and purposeful, you know. And, and yet Jesus says, no, the whole, whole creation is based on abundance. Remember the creation which was um, given to you as a gift. Uh, with with really no purpose other than its its own uh, existence as as uh, abundant beauty and uh, this heart of God uh, which is love and love will create generatively in in uh, in and creating some sometimes very um, what you one might call useless <laughs> things um, you know uh, when we go on a date we we don't do oftentimes purpose-driven things. We, we do unnecessary things. And, and that shows that at, at the heart of love is this gratuitous beauty, abundance, that, that is uh, given to us uh, as a gift. And we want to give that to each other. And so I, I would think, you know, art belongs in that gift territory um, that we are given uh, creation and uh, ourselves, our lives as a gift from from the creator. Um, and we are simply to return that if we love anything, that means um, we are creating into the, um, from the abundant mindset into new creation. It's a bit like at the relational level, um, true friendship, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, true absolutely. friendship um, isn't about utility. Yes. In fact, there's something you know. If you if you are using someone to some end, it's not friendship. It's a really it's a really strange thing. Yeah, and uh, C.S. Lewis says you know, Phidias, the friendship um, is is the highest of of, of the loves, mm -hmm. and and I, I think that they, what you just noted is exactly uh, why um, it, mm -hmm. it is gratuitous. It is excessive. It is something that you know we we have as as counter to. Survival, but oftentimes that very thing, that excess of, of creation, is what saves us at the end. Philosophers have long suggested that one of the things that makes us distinctly human is our desire, our longing for goodness, 
truth and beauty. Peter Kreeft is the Catholic philosopher we featured recently for the Kingdom Come episode. He writes that goodness, truth, and beauty are the only three things that we never get bored with and never will for all eternity, because they are three attributes of God, and therefore attributes of all God's creation. He's echoing a long philosophical tradition in Christian theology, and even before. These are universal properties built into creation. Everything in creation participates to some degree in goodness, truth, and beauty. The 5th century genius, Saint Augustine, you knew we were going to slip him in here, writes about beauty in his classic De Veritate Religioni of True Religion. And he poses the question, are things beautiful because they give us delight? Or do they give us delight because they are beautiful? He emphatically opts for the second. Beauty is an objective thing built into the creation and it calls out to us. It produces in us a transcendent kind of joy. Something similar was said by pagan philosophers too. The third century Greek thinker Plotinus wrote, this is the spirit that beauty must ever induce, wonderment and a delicious trouble, longing and love and a trembling that is all delight. I love that idea. Beauty isn't just pleasurable. It produces in us a longing. And often it's not just a longing for the beautiful object itself. It's a longing for something the beautiful object points to beyond itself. Um, you say that beauty is good for us. Um, how? What does, it, what does it do to us? One of the things I think that beauty does in our in our lives is it is it um, I don't I don't know it it, <laughs> it without it we our lives would become pretty sterile our relationships would become uh, boring uh, our work would become perfunctory and a means to an end um, but if we look at life through the lens of beauty is everywhere Rich Mullins the late Rich Mullins the singer songwriter said there's so much beauty around us for just two eyes to see, but everywhere I go, I'm looking. I think that's the mandate for us is to say, as as people who have the capacity to notice beauty, which human beings really are the only, um, the only thing walking around sentient enough to uh, notice beauty and pause and linger and take it in. Um, and as people who are, as, as beings who are engaging with beauty for beauty's sake. Um, and I think that's a unique thing. It would be a, it would be a shame, um, if we lived our lives in such a way that we just cut that part out. Caravaggio. Caravaggio, a paradox of profanity and wonder. He, created these works of art that are these transcendent pictures of biblical truth and between painting those things uh drank stole and murdered people <laughs> maybe i should have drilled down on that one <laughs> Sadly, we can't dwell long on Caravaggio, but he's a late 16th, early 17th century Italian painter, and he was quite the character. One of his biographers put it like this. After a fortnight's work, 
He will swagger about for a month or two with a sword at his side and a servant following him, from one ball court to the next, ever ready to engage in a fight or an argument, so that it is most awkward to get along with him. Even still, Caravaggio was hugely influential. His religious art juxtaposed the sacred and the profane. According to Russ Ramsey, Caravaggio was moved by the power of Christ to change people's hearts. Russ writes, the theme of the sinner's need for rescue and Christ's power to give it runs through his entire body of work. It was a story he told over and over again throughout his entire life, presumably because he kept needing to hear it. Fair enough. Hey, um, anyone who travels to Europe sees a lot of religious art, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so what's all that about? When was this really religious art most popular and why? Well, you know, it's we live in a time now where you can you can have a Kindle and you can get books, you know, online and carry around a library on your phone. Mm. Um, but there was a time when when books weren't um, widely dispersed, and so the ones that tended to be were scripture and mythology. These tended to be the stories that everybody had access to, and so it follows that art would um, draw on ubiquitous stories. And so, so you, that's why you can have um, painters who, you know, by, by, you know, just looking biographically at their lives, you would wonder, is this person a person of faith or were they, were they just kind of a licentious scoundrel with a gift, you know, and uh, um, Caravaggio. But, yeah, Caravaggio would be would be an example, and I and I certainly would not want to pass any judgment on the quality of his soul, mm. uh, because because I think part of my hope as a, as a Christian is that walking contradictions can be redeemed, yeah. um, which is good news. Did, but did he but, do uh, the um, doubting Thomas? You know where? Yeah, the incredulity the, yeah, of Saint the Thomas, incredulity, the yeah. finger where the Christ is guiding Thomas's finger into the wound. Yeah, in I mean, side. it is yeah. hard to look at that and think this guy doesn't understand this. Yeah, yeah. Was the church? only interested in art for religious sake uh, or or for the sake of art and beauty itself because some would some would just say oh you know the church only sponsored art because it was trying to propagandize mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think it's both um i think that when when you when you look at particularly like the the era of the reformation um you know the, the catholic church leaned heavy into creating art during that period. And one of the reasons they did that is was because um, Protestant churches, reformed churches, were uh, very critical of any kind of representation of God or Jesus or or really art itself was kind of seen as garish and well pres and Presbyterians so, took a lot of paintings down in churches, did they not? Yes. <laughs> yes. And shame on us for that. Um, you know, but yeah, I think so, what to say about the Reformation in two minutes, which is all producer Kaylee is giving me. The 16th century Reformation was a kind of back to basics movement, at first within the Catholic Church, and then of course, as a breakaway from the Catholic Church. Perhaps the key idea that drove the Protestant Reformation was a return to the original simplicity 
of the Christian faith. It was, in fact, part of a larger European movement known as humanism, which was also interested in going back to the original sources, including the Greek and Latin sources of antiquity. The Christian version of humanism that gave us the Protestant Reformation was eager to go back to the original words of the apostles in the New Testament, rather than rely on the accumulated traditions of the centuries. As a result of this general outlook, there was an overreaction against beauty and art in the Protestant tradition. In trying to make sure people were not distracted by images in their worship of God and stuck to the word of God, Protestants have generally had less interest in art. Sorry about that. But there was a combination of it, right? Like it was certainly used to inspire awe, to draw the eye, to... um, to uh, as a means of biblical literacy in a culture where people didn't widely have uh, couldn't read uh, where they could see the the images you know Bono talks about uh, stained glass in those old European churches as the first movies you know um, pictures through uh, light and color you know and um, but it was also a uh, it was also a way of in a way it was a sport like certain churches would hire certain prominent artists to do the popular works that they would feature in their foyer. And then, and then, you know, uh, so that church would have a Botticelli, but this other church might have a Michelangelo or, you know, and uh, so it was used for that. So it's a combination, right? And we're nothing is really ever that pure. Uh, And, and the church is, has been a part of that. And of course, a lot of the Renaissance art and stuff like that, the, the, there wasn't a, you know, much of a distinction between church and state in those in those times when it came to power uh, and governing people mm. and um, affluence and and wealth and and things that would dazzle mm. uh, were of value to draw people in. There's a sense in which the Enlightenment, not just the Reformation, was responsible for a further diminution of art and beauty. Enlightenment thinkers like David Hume and Immanuel Kant, in different ways and to different degrees, chipped away at the idea that beauty was an objective fact of the world. They said that beauty was as much or perhaps even more in our heads than in the world. It's in the eye of the beholder, as the expression goes. The Enlightenment not only stressed human subjectivity in this way, it also focused our attention, rightly in some ways, much more on practical knowledge, the natural sciences, technology, utility, and ultimately industry. And there's not much place in these things for beauty. Beauty in this context is seen as a luxury. Will we ever recover our thirst for beauty in the church? Or society, I have hope. Um, I, I I think that we're we're cyclical by nature hmm. um, as as a species. Um, that nothing is new under the sun. Hmm. But I, I I do have hope that that we we've been through a few generations. I think of of trying to figure out the right way and do things the right way, and uh, generations of of trying pragmatism and capitalism and things that would. Um, put our footing underneath us and establish us forever so we wouldn't have need of anything. Mm. Um, But as the world grows more and more complex and as we gain more and more access through technology to uh, sad and horrific things happening around the world, our appetite for beauty, our need for it uh, will increase. But I, you know, I really come to believe, you know, any 
effort to define beauty misses the mark or anything that um, tries to make beauty outside of the centrality of who we are in our existence, um, we tend to marginalize beauty um, as, as a result of that. So what do you make of that tradition in art that's, that's really mm-hmm. quite modern? Um, I can't mm-hmm. think of it being a medieval or ancient thing. That um, is almost a protest against beauty. It's mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. A, a counter. Right. And that's connected with our alienation um, of contemporary society to the source of beauty, which, who, who is God. And, but also it's an alienation to oneself. Um, we're disconnected from the very source of how we connect with um, ourselves. So, so as a result, we sus- we are very suspicious of um, of beauty in general. Now, many artists who ha- protest against beauty are protesting against the Western notion of beauty, mm. which can be very much superficially you know, heavy laden with Western idealism. Mm. Um, but as as you may know, my definition has much to do with Japanese um, mm. way of understanding beauty, which is connected to sacrifice. So it's a very different way of looking at beauty. So can you give us that as a counterpoint to mm-hmm. the Western mm-hmm. idea of beauty? Sure. Um, beauty in, in Japan is connected to sacrifice and death. Um, the Chinese ideogram used for beauty is um, comprised of two uh, Ch- uh, Chinese characters or ideograms. Uh, it's uh, sheep on top of a character for great. Uh, so Japanese aesthetic philosophers have um, traced this and, and said that in Japan around 11th century, um, the idea of beauty, which came in from China, uh, which was uh, fat sheep, big sheep, <laughs> that is you know something to celebrate uh, in autumn festivals um, as as a blessing, um, has um, become uh, more known, connected with sacrifice, the idea of sacrifice. So the great sheep is a sacrifice of. Uh, anything, nature, uh, or even ourselves. And so I note in my book, Silence and Beauty, that this idea of great sacrifice, great lamb uh, being sacrificed is connected with Christ and the redemptive, um, uh, what is hidden in Japanese culture is this always this idea that someone has to be sacrificed for our sakes. Mm. And yet Western art seems to be more fixated in its traditional form mm. with life and creation rather than sacrifice. Would that be accurate? Uh, perf- kind of a perfectionism, you know, mm. this immaculate understanding of uh, thinking about anything, uh, ex- including beauty, to be perfection of mm. our image. You know, that's very platonic, you know, uh, Greek idea. But we, you know, so so industrial uh, 
revolution has done a lot to this idea, which is, you know, when, whenever you improve upon the old, a new iPhone is, you know, considered to be perfect <laughs> for a moment, right? And, and then you, you have the next version, <laughs> which is, um, as opposed to a Japanese notion, which is, you know, which can enter through something, um, through imperfection or brokenness. Or, mm. or sacrifice, um, and and to me that and that way of thinking is more accurate to the biblical notion of beauty and goodness. I've forgotten the name of that incredible Japanese style of of mending broken things. What, what's it called again, and what's its significance? It's called kintsugi, but kintsugi uh, kin is gold, and sugi is to mend, but it's also to uh, pass on to the next generation. And when an important tea vessel breaks because of many earthquakes that Japan has, um, it, um, often the family of tea masters will hold on to the fragments for several generations, and they will give it to uh, Japan urushi or Japan lacquer master to mend, but they don't fix it to restore it as if nothing's happened. They actually accentuate the fissures and brokenness and create instead a river of gold through it or lightning or a mountain, uh, you know, creating a landscape using gold uh, in, in, in a place of where the fracture or where the fissures uh, remain. So they're actually accentuating uh, the imperfections and they're making it more beautiful the resulting kintsugi bowl is far more valuable than the original, even uh, as, as valuable as the original may, may, may have been. Um, the, the, and to me, this is a great example of a new creation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when the Bible talks about uh, Jesus' post-resurrection appearance, Jesus appears as a human being, but also uh, as a wounded human mm-hmm. being. Mm-hmm. Um, and his nail marks are still there. Thomas, you know, um, is asks to touch it. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. He worships instead once he realizes that his question was turned into an invitation into new creation. And, and so by his wounds, we are healed. And um, we are brought into this understanding of new creation through the um, nail marks of Christ. Um, and that, that, to me, is very much what Kintsugi can represent. From the 15th century Italian Renaissance to ancient Japanese practices, we've traveled far and wide in the pursuit of beauty. And we've got further to go from a brilliant female British painter who finds herself in northern Africa at the turn of the 20th century to a studio in 21st century New York. Stick with us after the break. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades. And access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. 
Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. Good. Okay. I'm going good too. <laughs> yes, you are. And no white spaces. No white spaces. Is that important? Yeah, that's important. That's producer Kaylee and her five-year-old son on one of their crafternoons. Like most households with young kids, Kaylee's dining table is a mess of paper and textures, stickers and glue. We're all artists until third grade, right? <laughs> somebody, tells us, somebody tells us we're not and we believe them. And we spend the rest of our lives looking for a way to really make something. <laughs> um, and we, we may be very successful in what we do, but you know, what we, um, what have we made is, is, is the ultimate question. I was really moved by this interview. I think I used to be creative. My first full-time career was writing, recording and performing songs. Not so much anymore. I suppose I still create books and arguments, but it's not the same. I miss creativity, almost with an ache. And not long after my interview with Makoto, I had some weeks off. I mostly read, uh, practiced Latin, went for long walks, but I also wrote a new song. The first song in, let's just say, more than a decade. Don't worry, I'm not going to play it for you. But I don't mind telling you, I cried. The song is no masterpiece, but the whole process of once again creating a melody, chords and lyrics was like falling into the embrace of a long lost friend. But just in, in daily life, how to cultivate uh, that, that pursuit of beauty? Yeah, I think um, allowing yourself the permission to stop when something beautiful is happening in front of you or, or around you and give yourself, um, you don't have to give yourself an hour to watch a sunset, but if you give yourself 20 seconds to stand and watch a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset before moving on, the difference that will make in your life versus not giving it that 20 seconds will be, uh, no pun intended, night and day, right? <laughs> is that is that um, I think there there is beauty and grace happening all around us. The question is, will we do we want to be there for it? Um, and so it's cultivating the habits of of trying to pay attention. Can we talk just practically for a second about your um, daily mm -hmm. practices, you know, in the studio. I am here in my Princeton uh, studio. It's a whole spawn uh, turned into a studio, and I come here every morning. And I have a series of paintings that I started 
about two years ago based on the Psalms. Uh, it's 48 inches by 48 inch uh, canvas uh, that um, every month I take one Psalm and I work on it. So it's going to take me another decade to finish this <laughs> 150 Psalms. I, I didn't think about it, you know, when I was, when I started it. Um, but, um, you know, that's how I start my day meditating on the Psalms. And, uh, then, then I have commissions and, um, I have projects that I, I want to complete. So I work on that. And, and then in between time, uh, because my, the process of how, how I work is slow and layered. Um, there's a painting downstairs that it's probably going to take me two years to complete uh, with over 200 layers. Um, and and I, want it, I want it to be a slow process. And, and it doesn't have any purpose other than uh, me wanting to use this particular uh, as right pigment that um, I just got for my... Uh, my dear uh, pigment maker uh, in Japan, and um, so, so sometimes it's purposeful, uh, like a commission serving some uh, client or collector. Uh, most of the time, I uh, it's a meditative, contemplative practice uh, that I get to, um, I get to focus on here in my studio. Do you push through when you're not feeling the creative juices, or are you just so blessed that you are always feeling creative? <laughs> Yeah, I there there are times when you know when you're young you you do wrestle with you know when is the work finished and you know you want to say everything in a single piece you know <laughs> and then you you get to a point where you realize you know you it's best to stop a work when it's it's about to give birth to ten other paintings so when it's most pregnant you know uh, with with generative possibilities and and then you work on you know these 10 other paintings that that you you want to do and so i i've never had an artist block uh since i realized that in, in my 20s actually uh because i i don't have time on this side of eternity to finish all the works that i want to do um so uh and and you know making art making anything is hard work um and you do have to be very disciplined because you're bringing in something invisible on the side of eternity. In my own heart, I feel like uh, this one needs a drum roll. Uh-huh. Rembrandt. Rembrandt. Con, tell Rembrandt. me about Rembrandt. Yes. So when Rembrandt was at his, uh, at his, his peak, um, other artists referred to him as the master. Mm. So his own contemporaries re regarded him as the master. He is, he is um, one of the most brilliant, enduring um, painters who was in control. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating to me about Rembrandt is when you look at his, his body of work, which is really, if you're appreciating art, that's a sweet place to get to, is where you're not just appreciating a painting, mm. but you're learning more about a body of work. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of like following Paul Simon, right? And where, where you, you know the Simon and Garfunkel songs, but now if you know the stuff he wrote, you know, after 2000, you're like, what a career, you know? Mm. And you, you see this body of work of a person changing. Rembrandt yeah. is that I way. I think of Sting has, the same. Yeah, yeah. You think, think the police, yeah. you know, back, back uh -huh. to synchronicity right through to, uh -huh. you know, his amazing uh, multicultural stuff. But Rembrandt has these, uh, he painted the scene of 
um, Joseph and Mary presenting Jesus in the temple, and Simeon is there. It's in, it's in Luke chapter 2. And he painted one version. Of, he painted it twice. He painted one version when he was 24 years old. And it will knock your socks off. It's just this elaborate uh, painting of the the temple and the architecture is there. There's over 50 people kind of standing on the steps, which are acting like risers. So you can see all of them as individual pieces. There's this shaft of light coming down and it's ornate and just takes your breath away. But then the, the year before he died, when he was, I think he was 60, he was in his 60s. I don't remember exactly, but he was, it was the year before he died. He painted that painting again. And all it is, is an old man holding a baby. Hmm. And it's, and there's, and it's kind of muted in the, in the brushwork. It's not, it's not elaborate. And there's a woman standing over the shoulder looking on. And what you see in the, in the trajectory of his uh, kind of growth in life as an artist is, is in his twenties, he's trying to dazzle. He's trying to show you what he can do. Um, but then as an old man, the the painting looks like somebody who just wants to hold Jesus. Like, you know, he just, he just wants to, to, it's intimate in a way that the, you know, the the other was allowed, he goes from, he goes from elaborate to intimate. Mm. Um, and from, uh, you know, just technically precise to, to, uh, to, to this kind of warmth. Do we know anything about his own faith? Um, I mean, he said when you, some of his paintings, you think, how could this man not have understood the thing? Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of the prodigal, you know, that prodigal yeah. the father oh, yeah. embracing yeah. The, the son. What do we know of his, yeah, um, yeah. his religion? Yeah. From, from, from what I understand, um, he, he was, you know, he was a person of faith and that it was, and that his faith and his art um, were, uh, were hand in hand. You see it because his prodigal son, even even the return of the prodigal son, there's another of the prodigal son off in the far country, and it's a self portrait. Mm. He's there, mm. uh, and and the woman that he's got his arm around is his wife, and she she died tragically. He buried children. He lost his fortune, and so over the course of his life, he was he was a man who suffered. Why does he put himself uh, in paintings? He, he does it quite a bit, right? Is this just the original selfie, or is there something more profound going on? Yeah, no, no. This was this was a uh, method of evangelism. Yeah. Um, this was a this was a way of saying this story is my story. Yeah, right. And so, and when an artist puts themselves in the story, it's a way of them saying I'm part of this. Mm. So he's one of the. Um, there's a there's a raising of the cross painting where he's one of the people raising the cross which Christ is nailed to, mm. and he's there mm. um, in his kind of typical blue velvet that he paints himself into often. And then when he looks at the viewer, it's not just that he's putting himself in the story, but he's asking the viewer, "Aren't you in this story too?" Mm. And so it was very much a way of of drawing the viewer um, into the story and and in a in a pretty pointed way um of course you still you know as a as a regular christian <laughs> have time for <laughs> reading the bible and um and praying i mean you you're not such such an artist that you don't like words as well is that right <laughs> well word, word is art right i mean it is the, if, if if we understand that god is the artist and i'm not talking about something outside you know of um essence of and 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 something that is superficial or cosmetic i'm talking about art that is fundamental to the the creator um and that that source of 
uh, all wisdom and beauty is what rejuvenates us, uh, what, what, what our souls hunger for. And, and so when, when we read the Word of God, um, we are encountering a portal through which we, we, we actually get to tap into that. Um, and God wants to sanctify our imagination so uh, we can be given wings. Uh, you know, not as C.S. Lewis uh, notes, you know, we're not horses that are trained to jump higher and higher uh, of uh, hurdles of moralism. We are creatures with wings, um, and we have to exercise our wings and imagination and faith in order to fly into the new creation. Um, and so, Word of God, prayer, um, is is fundamentally an act of training ourselves to um, use these, um, uh, the, you know, parts of us that are growing. Um, and many times when you first try to do this, you you land very awkwardly many times. And, um, you know, it, it's part of, I think, a discipline, but also communal, you know, the church journey is to grow our wings together. Um, and, and, and oftentimes that can only happen if we are honest and vulnerable to each other. And uh, as artists are, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to look at the world uh, full of fractures and pain and, and, and say, yeah, I, you know, this day I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to create something new into the world. And if we can do that together, um, that, 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 that will be such a powerful statement uh, in, in light of what we are experiencing to, today. More than 150 years ago, a British woman began her journey to become one of the world's greatest artists. Her mentor was a renowned art critic who believed that technique must be acquired hand in hand with the skill of learning to look. Technique and the gift of looking was something that Lilius Trotter seemed to have in abundance. Lilius Trotter. Um, now, again, my listeners won't have heard much about her. Uh, why did you choose her for your book? So Lilius Trotter was a, uh, a painter who uh, grew up in, in uh, kind of Victorian London, well-to-do, well-off, um, talented and she did watercolors. And there's a um, art teacher, critic, uh, philosopher, artist named John Ruskin, uh, who lived in, in London. And he was kind of the, uh, um, if, if Ruskin put his arm around you and said, this painter is somebody to pay attention to, everybody took notice. Mm. And uh, Lilius's mother, she, the, Lilius and her mother, when she was a girl, were, were staying at, at a hotel at the, at the same time as that Ruskin was there. And her mother asked Ruskin, can I show you some of my daughter's paintings? And, uh, you know, Ruskin was going to, going to you know, uh, endure the request, mm-hmm. but wasn't expecting anything to happen. And he was uh, undone by what he saw, mm-hmm. um, particularly that such a young woman would have such a... Uh, technical precision without any training, uh, that she was doing things that were, she was doing things the right way, uh, in, in terms of how art teachers would teach art students how to, 
how to paint. And he started, and he asked if he could keep some of them. He used them as, as examples for what his art students that he taught uh, should do. <laughs> Um, and they developed a relationship when he was when he was trying to cultivate her, and he he said of her, "You can be you can be the most famous living painter in Europe if 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 you pour yourself into this craft, and I can help that happen." But she she had this longing to serve the poor, mm. and so she served in in um, uh, she served prostitutes in London, and she served. Uh, poor and and uh, disenfranchised women, but then she heard some missionaries talk about Algeria, mm. and um, particularly she she developed a, a desire to go and minister to the Arabic women of Algeria, a very poor country at that time, and so she sought permission through some mission boards to go. And women missionaries wasn't really a thing unless they were married to a man missionary. And so uh, they did not, all the missionary boards denied her. Uh, and so she and a couple of her friends decided to just go on their own. And so they, so she basically left what could have been um, a dazzling career as an artist in, in the heart of London uh, to serve the poor on the coast of Africa. Mm. And uh, I found her story so compelling um, for a number of reasons. Uh, by no means am I telling that story to say, uh, if you have the choice between being a missionary or an artist, you should choose being yeah. a missionary. I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. I think I think um, if, if God calls somebody to be an artist with their life, they better not become a missionary mm. um, because there's this calling. Mm. But one of the things that moved me so much about her story is I started thinking about, okay, here's a woman who had to take something that she was gifted at and had the whole world in front of her. And she basically had to set it down in order to pursue this other calling that she believed was really where the Lord wanted her to go and what she was to do with her life. And so, you know, she didn't marry, she didn't have children. She, she, she still painted, but she painted, you know, in order to break the language barrier between her and the Arabic mm, women. So mm. she painted as a form of communication, but she wasn't painting masterpieces. She was painting evangelistic tracts yeah. and she was painting, um, you know, stories of the Bible in order to teach people. And one of her friends commented um, to, to, to a reporter later that even though she was completely confident that she was doing what she was on earth to do as this missionary to these women, that there was a pain that she carried with her over the loss of this um, artistic expression. And the thing that made me kind of perk up and really want to tell this story is the, the her friend said it, it wasn't when she wasn't painting that she felt the loss it was when she picked up her brush to paint mm. that she was acutely aware that she wasn't as good as she used to be mm. that there was an unfamiliarity to this craft that she used to have a level of mastery over and i just think who 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 among us doesn't have something like that? You know, where we, when we were in our teens or in our twenties, we thought I'm going to do this thing. Uh, and it's going to define who, who people come to know me to be. And then, yeah, I was going to uh, play for Manchester United just for the record. Yeah. Yeah. Other things. It, did, it didn't work so, out. <laughs> you could have done it too, if it wasn't for the, you know, the podcast. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think what, that's a compelling story. I like how it's not, it's not the happy ending of yeah. see, she chose the better path and everything worked out. It was, see, she chose this path and she 
was content to believe it was faithful and it still came at a cost and it still hurt sometimes. In what way does beauty point to transcendence, point to God? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love this question. I, I I believe that all of us are walking around wondering, is this it? You know, is this all there is? And I think that you can, I could stand in front of Michael, Michelangelo's David even, and get to a point where I would say, is this is this all there is? Um, as transcendent and as beautiful as that may be. Uh, C.S. Lewis had a great statement where he said, if we find in ourselves a hunger that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Uh, that that appetite is there, and there, it's there because we were made to have that appetite satisfied, that longing satisfied. Um, and if we can't get it satisfied in this world the way that it is, it's because we weren't made for this world in the way that it is. We were made for something more glorious and something more beautiful and something more eternal uh, and something more whole. And beauty is where we often go to engage with that appetite, you know, and it, and it doesn't, and I don't, I don't mean religious art. I mean, any art, mm. you know, we, we, you, I mean, you, you could listen to a rock band that you loved in college and it will stir something in your heart that is, that, you know, is transcendent that you, that, you know, is, is about more than just the notes being played and the rhythm in which they're, they're recorded. That's that there, that there's something transcendent about it. And art reminds us of that. And yet you're and saying indeed, it's not fully satisfying. Like even the best art, it's just, yeah. it's just like a window to, to something beyond. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, it's a for, it's a foretaste. It's foretaste, a it's yeah. a uh, mm. it's a reminder to us mm. that uh, you know that's one of the things that that beauty does is it is it it makes copies of itself, right? So when you when you stand in front of a painting, you're going to want to pull out your phone and take a picture of it, you know. Or if you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, you might want to get a piece of paper out and sketch it or paint it with watercolors, because there's something about the encounter with that beautiful thing that you want to somehow try to take it with you. Uh, and, and the question that, that, that I would just want to ask is what's that about? Was it, what is it about that there's something in us that wants to collect beauty that we can, that we can carry around with us and that we can, and that we can have. And, and, you know, my faith, I believe it answers that question for me. I think we all had experience of encountering an artwork or music or uh, theater um, that spoke something about the mystery of our lives uh, in a way that didn't we didn't expect anybody to understand. It unlocked something deeply within us, and we it could be a cinema or movie uh, you're sitting there and all of a sudden something something breaks open and if you're not a religious person or maybe if you're uh, you know someone who have not had the experience of going to church or synagogue or mosque or uh, whatever that may be spiritual path um, you, you wouldn't know what to do with that 
but still, you know, poetry and art and music, um, arts have, have a way of untapping the mystery of our beings. So, uh, in, in that sense, we are all believers. <laughs> um, you know, we believe in the transcendent reality when we see a sunset. Um, what do we feel, right? When we see fireflies in, in the dark skies, um, just, just you know, skies full of them. Or um, I'm in Princeton here today, and these spring peepers, these little frogs, just came out today. And, you know, I went bounding into my wife's office and said, you know, peepers are out, you know. What, what makes us so joyful about the spring and and the flowers and the birds these are all common experiences i think and and in that sense we all believe in the idea that something can give us this experience of transcendence and hope and joy when 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 frankly you know we might be facing a situation which is very bleak In one of the endorsements at the front of Russ Ramsey's book, Rembrandt is in the Wind, the best-selling author Leif Anger writes, Beauty amid the church's moral twilight might be the last apologetic that holds. Ouch. He's saying there's not much left to commend the church to doubters. That maybe goes too far, but there's something in it. But I think Anger is dead right that beauty is a powerful argument on behalf of transcendence. Immanuel Kant, for all of his enlightenment rigour and critical analysis, thought that beauty was a kind of reverberation in the created order of the elegant mind of the creator. Paul Draper, a popular agnostic philosopher, once wrote, theism is supported by the fact that the universe contains an abundance of beauty. Vincent van Gogh put it like this, For my part, I know nothing with any certainty, but the sight of the stars makes me dream. His famous starry night and sunflowers point to the beauty of creation, yet his other works explore the beauty that is less easily seen. Van Gogh is now one of the most influential and famous painters of the Western world, but he found beauty in ordinary people and ordinary places. Russ Ramsey says Van Gogh is a paradox. In the thousands of words he wrote in letters, mostly to his brother Theo, Van Gogh revealed his immorality, pride and anger. But they also show a striving man who, as Russ writes, recognised beauty, wonder and worth in people in ways few others ever would. And throughout his letters, he never stopped professing his love of Christ despite his brokenness, or perhaps because of it. Well, here is my fi- my final question. Um, you, you already confessed earlier on that your favorite, favorite artist is Van Gogh. Yes. Um, so I guess I want to ask why and what's, let's just say, one painting that exemplifies the best of him. Okay. Um, so Van Gogh, the reason I love Van Gogh is partially because of the letters, uh, is because we don't just have work, but we have what he said about the work. Mm. Uh, so he's he's one of the greatest resources for understanding the creative process that that is available. There are websites that have just his, uh, his letters organized where you can search them. Um, but Van Gogh had a had a relentless appetite to to capture the beauty in everything that he saw, 
Um, and he was particularly drawn to um, scenes of the poor or the working class or like he was looking for beauty in places where beauty is not known to be found uh, and he was finding it and he was painting it. Um, and, and there's, and he was, and he, and his appetite for it was, was insatiable. He painted more paintings uh, than anybody else that I know of, like on average, if you were to break down how many paintings per year he painted over the course of his life as an artist, it's it, that, that average is, is just blows away everybody else. Uh, it was, it was, he, he, he couldn't find what he was looking for, you know, and, and, but he was trying. Uh, the painting that I have right here in my office, I look, I raise my eyes from my desk in my pastor's study is um, Van Gogh's self-portrait with a bandaged ear. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would be the one that, that, uh, that really kind of got me because it's a painting. If people know anything about Vincent Van Gogh, they probably know that he cut off his ear mm -hmm. and maybe know that he gave it to a prostitute. And then the jokes abound. He painted it while he was in asylum in, an, in a mental institution, recovering from this breakdown that he had. And he paints himself in this moment of vulnerability and shame. And with a painting, you can show whatever you want, right? You don't, it's not a photograph. You don't have to hide anything. And so he paints a picture of himself with his wounded side showing. And I think as a human being and as a pastor, that's a, that feels like a mandate for me mm. that I dare not try to present myself to my friends or my congregation as somebody who is completely whole and has everything together. If I have, a, if I have wounded parts of me, I dare not hide those from people because we all have them. But the mystery and the beauty and the wonder of that particular painting is here he is capturing himself when he's the most alone he's ever been, the most embarrassed he's ever been, the most destitute that he's ever been, and it's now worth millions. Hmm. And it hangs in a museum uh, that you can go to visit and stand in front of with your jaw on the floor because of the uh, the honesty and the vulnerability of this masterwork, you know, and there's something that just moves me about the the paradox of that, of the fragility of this man in the moment that he captured being this, this work of art of inestimable value. And uh, that to me just is so moving. Well, that's the last episode for the season. We hope you enjoyed it. We're already working hard at planning season seven and season eight for later in the year, and we'll be back after the season break with more Undeceptions. In the meantime, why not look back through our catalogue and check out some of the episodes you might have missed. Some particularly popular episodes from previous seasons include Resting Well, episode 60, Between Testaments, episode 54, Jesus Philosopher, episode 57, Pro-Life, episode 49, LGBTI Christian, episode 24, and our very first episode, Old Papers, about the manuscripts of the New Testament. 
Thank you also to the tons of listeners who filled out our first listener survey. It's given us plenty to think about as we plan the coming seasons. And congratulations to Roz Burt and James Allen, who won our season six book and t-shirt packs by completing the survey. We should already have been in touch to get those prizes out to you. Happy reading. A few other things before I go. Can I encourage you to follow the Underceptions Network Facebook page while we're on our season break? It's where you'll hear first when the next season is ready. Plus, lots of other news about the podcast and our other network podcasts. Speaking of our other podcasts, you should definitely subscribe to Small Wonders with Laurel Moffat. She's in the final lap of her first season, and it's one of the most beautiful podcasts out there, I reckon. There's plenty of food for thought in her 15-minute audio essays. And keep an eye out also for With All Due Respect with Michael Jensen and Megan Paltatois. There's plenty more episodes to keep your eager ears busy while we're making the next episodes of Underceptions. And finally, if you like what we're doing here and you want to support us, please head to underceptions.com, click the oversized donate button and go where the wind blows. This season, we've been hovering just below the break-even mark of $3,000 an episode. I personally take nothing from the podcast, but I do have bills and staff to pay. I really appreciate your help. From all of us here at Underceptions, thank you. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Van Gogh Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwing, social media by Sophie Hawkshaw and executive assistance by Lindy Leviston. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of underceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Underceptions podcast. <laughs>